Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose here. That's Robinson Earhart with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 69. And this episode is with Frank Jackson, who is emeritus professor at the Australian National University. And I think pretty much everybody knows who Frank Jackson is, even if they don't know his name, because, I mean, even my parents when I say, oh, I'm talking to Frank Jackson, and they say, who? And I say, remember Mary's room, the the scientist in the white room who never sees color and then sees color? Does she learn anything? You've probably heard it in or seen it in tons of movies. I feel like they mention it in Ex Machina. And when I say this to my parents, not verbatim, they're like, oh, yeah, Frank Jackson, whose name I didn't know. But anyways, Frank Jackson is a philosopher, which I've already said. He has worked in philosophy of mind, epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, all sorts of things. Uh, Metaphilosophy, though I don't know if he would call it metaphilosophy. I I asked him that in the course of our conversation. But uh, Frank actually has repudiated the the knowledge argument. He no longer uh, thinks that it is successful in defeating the physicalist. But anyway, in, in this episode, we talk a lot about physicalism. We do talk about the knowledge argument, though, since he's given uh, Mary and her white room up and gets uh, asked about it all the time, I think it drives him nuts to talk about. So I was very thankful that he was willing to go into it with me. Uh, But most of our conversation was about conceptual analysis, which roughly is the philosophical technique of examining maybe the the meaning or the content or the definition of a concept to resolve questions about it. And I'll give an example that we talk about or I bring up in the episode. So you have the Sorites paradox and the Sorites paradox, which I've also mentioned in, in many episodes, also known as the paradox of the heap. We all agree that uh, some huge heap of sand is a heap. Uh, We also agree that it's absurd to say that taking one grain of sand out of that heap would no longer make it a heap. But if we accept this, then we seem to be committed to the absurd conclusion that each time we take a grain of sand out of the heap and we ask ourselves, are we still left with a heap? we are. And the reason this is absurd is that eventually we get to the point where there's one grain of sand left and we're still committed to saying that there's a heap. And this is a a bad example of conceptual analysis, but you might answer, well, what is a heap then? By analyzing the concept. And some people have determined that a heap is anything with, uh, I think it's four grains or so, so a base and then something on top of it. Uh, Maybe it it was three grain base, but the point is that this wholly avoids the interesting question of vagueness. But Frank argues, not in this particular case, but in favor of conceptual analysis as a tool in philosophy. And a lot of the content that we discuss can be found in his book, From Metaphysics to Ethics, A Defense of Conceptual Analysis. 
The last things I will say are that I've been playing with AI recording equipment. I I don't know what to say. It or recording doctor, recording helping. But anyways, taking uh, lower quality recordings and then making them sound like they were recorded in a studio using AI. And I've noticed that it's on the whole terrific, but there are points where it takes random sounds and makes them sound like strangely high pitch or like chirps or something like that. But on the whole, I think it's worth it for the audio throughout the whole episode to be really good. So I'm sorry if there are any of those. And then last, I should say, follow me on Twitter at Robinson Earhart. I'm also on Instagram and stuff. And every morning on Twitch at Robinson Eats, though it's also on a separate YouTube channel, I stream a pint of me eating a pint of ice cream or other things and talking to whoever shows up. And I have a lot of fun doing that. And then lastly, uh, Robinson's Fashion Empire has recently been born as part of the Robinson's Podcast Multiverse. And you might want to check it out. I have one t-shirt and I think it's pretty cool. So without any further ado, I hope that you all, all you beautiful geeselings, enjoy this conversation with Frank as much as I enjoyed having it. In preparing for this interview, I discovered the surprising fact that uh, both of your parents were philosophers, not just one, which would be surprising enough, but also that your father was even a student of Wittgenstein. And this immediately made me wonder, what was it like growing up in a house where you had academic philosophy on the left and right? And unlike most of us, you didn't discover who didn't discover it until, I mean, late high school or, or college? Well, I guess the short answer is it was uh, fascinating. <laughs> I started life as a mathematics science student. But as you said, mum and dad were philosophers. And they were philosophers back in the day when philosophy involved an awful lot of talking. I mean, nowadays it involves an awful lot of talking, but back then it was even more so. There was a sort of tradition, particularly by people influenced by Wittgenstein, that an awful lot of philosophical work would be done through conversational exchanges. So I was a math science student at school and early times as an undergraduate, but uh, back home they'd be visiting philosophers who'd come in for a glass of wine or a meal, and they would talk philosophy more or less nonstop. And uh, I was fascinated. So what happened was I started off in math science and gradually moved across to do more and more philosophy on less and less math science. And then I finally cut, well, I I jumped ship, I suppose, (laughs) and became a philosopher. Of course, it's not uncommon for philosophers to start out with a math science background. Um, uh, David Chalmers, uh, famously Bertrand Russell, uh, David Lewis, as I recall, I think was a a chemist, I think, before he became a philosopher. 
and and, and so it goes. Mm-hmm. And Grand Priest, who we were just talking about, uh, Quat, yeah. a minute ago. Now, I, I am curious, though, because philosophy, to me, today, seems to involve a lot of talking, uh, a ton of talking. You said even more back then. Do you know what changed sociologically that within philosophy that there's less talking now? I, it's hard for me to imagine there being more. Is it... Ah, well, remember, nowadays there's much more publishing going on. And okay, course, that's what I was uh, wondering. You, you don't talk while you're writing a paper on your computer or before computers and you write it up with the old fountain pen on, on paper. Um, back then, there was much less publishing. Uh, so this is partly a bit of science influence, but it wasn't just that. People were just, by and large, at least in England and Australia, I'm not so sure about America, but in England and Australia, people published very much less. So that time that people now spend in their offices writing the next big paper on so-and-so, a lot of that time wasn't spent writing the next big paper on so-and-so. It was, in the English case, probably having a pint, discussing the ideas in a pub. In the Australian case, it might be having a glass of wine or indeed having a glass of beer, but not English beer. It'll be Australian cold lager. Um, <laughs> so I think that, 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 that that's the difference. So if you wanted to capture it in a short little point, I think it would be the switch from conversation to publishing. I think that, that, that's been the big change. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. So the professionalization of philosophy turned it more from, uh, a, I, I don't know, fun is the right word, but more of an interpersonal endeavor or exploration. Yes. And just a concrete example. So take J.L. Austin, who was a very big figure in Oxford. I think I'm right in saying that he published nine or ten papers throughout his whole career, uh, and a couple of slim books appeared, which were basically produced by other people. Um, there were summaries of his lectures in one form or another. Well, now I, I'd, I'd like to turn to your book from Metaphysics to Ethics, and this isn't a question that I ever really ask my guests because I think it's a bit too obvious and a bit too broad. But when I'm talking with a professor that I'm close with, close with, or a mentor, I'll occasionally ask them uh, what they think philosophy is. And it's funny, but many of the philosophers that I've asked have started their response with something along the lines of, well, it certainly isn't conceptual analysis. <laughs> and... I won't ask you what philosophy is unless you'd like to answer because I would still love to hear it. But I would like to ask you just what conceptual analysis means to you and why you think it's been so repudiated and why this on your view is so misguided. And I'm sorry that was a mouthful, but hopefully I got the question across. No, um, a lot of people are against conceptual analysis but I think they're against the words conceptual analysis. I think, in fact, they do conceptual analysis without using those very words. Now, why do I think that? We'll take an extremely simple example to start with. Suppose I ask you, is 23 a prime number? Would yes. you like to answer that question sure. without yes. telling me 
what it takes to be a prime number, the, the answer is you can't. Suppose mm -hmm. I tell you, do you think the set of reals is larger than the set of positive integers? Well, yes is the answer, but how do you show the answer is yes? You take advantage of that wonderful account of what it is for infinite sets to be different in sizes. The analysis that Cantor gave us, in fact, without that analysis, you couldn't answer the question. Uh, one more example, those are sort of semi-elastic examples. Suppose I ask you whether determinism is compatible with free will. How do you tackle that without saying, you write an essay on You start up by telling the person what determinism is. When you tell them what determinism is, you tell them what it takes for determinism to be true. And then you tell them what it takes to have free will, and then you ask whether the two are compatible or not. That's all conceptual analysis. So I think what's happening is people still do conceptual analysis. They don't, they don't use those very words. I think that, 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 that's the short answer. Um, but let me emphasize, I don't think conceptual analysis is the whole of philosophy, not at all. Uh, I think conceptual analysis comes into play when you've got two accounts of how the world is, and you're wondering how they fit together. Hmm. So perhaps you've got an account of human behavior uh, which is deterministic in terms of the determination by beliefs and desires, or maybe in terms of neurophysiological states. So you've got an account of the determination of behavior, which is basically deterministic. And then someone says, okay, does that mean you're not really free? Then you have to say something about what it takes to be free. And one story might be, well, it takes to be free, your actions have to be undetermined. Well, then we know the answer. Determinism and free will are incompatible. Or maybe you say, no, no, being free is acting in accord with one's own character. And then, of course, that's compatible with determinism. So that, that, perhaps that's enough for now, but that's the message. I think hostility to conceptual analysis is actually hostility to the, the words. People mm -hmm. still do it. And, and so I, they should. So what is it then about the words that philosophers oppose when they hear the phrase conceptual analysis that, that they're repudiating? Uh, I think sometimes it's suspicion about the method of possible cases. Uh, and of course, I do have my own reservations about the method of possible cases. I think it can be misapplied. Um, but I always find it slightly puzzling because some of the people who are against conceptual analysis, I, in words, remember, my view is they're not really against conceptual analysis. They're against mm -hmm. the, the labeling. Um, they're pretty keen on uh, intuitions about Twin Earth and about Gödel and Schmidt and about Gettier uh, and lots of other examples about Ned Block's famous example of someone who works by a lookup tree. Um, they have intuitions about those examples and they're more than happy to deploy them in philosophizing. Uh, mm -hmm. That's conceptual analysis. That's appealing to the method of possible cases. Having said that, of course, I do think that the method of possible cases can go wrong. And in fact, actually, I think Twitter is an example. Uh, I think people are far too confident of one set of intuitions about Twin Earth, and they should be. That, I think, is much more debatable. Hmm.
Well, yeah, I, I'd love to talk some more about cases. So uh, maybe we could start with where conceptual analysis fits into metaphysics. And uh, particularly, uh, you've written about the debates over physicalism and the location problem. Well, let, let's give a simple example to give the the sense of the debate. Um, and I'll choose a really simple Mickey Mouse example to give the idea. Um, sure. Perhaps an aside on methodology. I think people don't spend enough time t talking about really simple examples when they launch into <laughs> the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. Here's a simple example. Suppose someone says, uh, Magnus Carlsen is the best chess player in the world. How do you answer that question? Well, you answer that question by spending a bit of time thinking about what it takes to be the best chess player. So the fact that he's Norwegian, uh, that's what I do it. No, no, he's being Norwegian's <laughs> the reason. Uh, okay, it's he wins lots of games. Well, that's not quite enough because if he wins lots of games by bribing his opponents, that's not. Okay, so you can see what happens. You spend a bit of time talking about what it takes to be the best chess player. And then you say, okay, does Carlson have what it takes to be the chess player's chess, best chess player? And the answer to that question is plausibly yes. You probably know more about chess than I do. But notice the order of discussion. We need to spend a bit of time on what it takes to be the best chess player. And that's conceptual analysis. You don't do experiments to find out what it takes yeah. to be the chess best player. You ask yourself, basically, what, what do I mean? What am I saying about someone when I say they're the best chess player? Now, I think the same thing applies when you think about the relationship between the mind and the brain. Is what goes on in the brain, does that tell us what's going on in people's minds? Well, he says, okay, what does it take to have beliefs and desires? Now I'm doing some conceptual analysis. Well, in my view, what it takes to have beliefs and desires is to be in states that record information about the environment, and the way they record the information about the environment guides the body through the world in such a way that the person desires satisfied. So basically, to have beliefs and desires is to be an information-carrying parcel of matter, but it could be dualist matter, it's not necessarily materialism, uh, an information-carrying parcel of matter which uses the information to systematically interact with its environment. So that's where it's a belief in desires. And of course, you can get this in a slogan. Here's how the slogan goes. Uh, people behave in such a way, their beliefs are true, their desires are satisfied. That's a little slogan that captures that conceptual analysis of belief and desires. And then you say, okay, now I'm now going to look at someone's brain and ask myself, does what goes on in the brain fit that story? And the answer is actually yes. So that tells us that a materialist view about the mind is compatible with there being beliefs and desires because what goes on when you look at the way the neuroscience works out uh, fits in precisely with the idea that you've got a complex structure which is carrying information about the environment which guides its interactions with the environment. So that would be a simple case in point. And what, though, is the location problem? Well, you've got a complex story about how the brain controls the behavior 
of a complex organism with respect to the environment. And you have to ask yourself, what part of that story is the story about belief and desire? And uh, the answer is going to be a bit of the story which tells us about how the brain is recording information about the environment, which then makes the body move in such a way that there are systematic changes in the environment which fit in with pattern of purposeful behavior. So that, that, that's the location problem. But you need to have a conception of belief and desire, of the kind I described a moment ago, and then, then you can locate beliefs and desires in the picture that the science gives us of what goes on in people's brains. Hmm. So to find belief that snow is white, you look into the head to find out the state in the head which does what's definitive of the belief that snow is white. So I have in mind one example that might be a place where conceptual analysis is, at least at first glance, not the right tool. Uh, and I, I wonder what you think about it. So in the case of the Sorides paradox, I mean, how many grains of sand make up a heap? I mean, this, is, this has been a, a problem for thousands of years that people have been grappling with. And I don't have the the names before me, but I know that some philosophers responded to this problem uh, by conceptual analysis, uh, in the sense that they they thought about what a heap was, and they determined that there is a a concrete answer that a heap is four grains of sand with another grain on top. So it's, it's got this three dimensionality. Um, that's just what a heap is. And I'm wondering if the sort of conceptual analysis that philosophers, other philosophers don't like is the sense in which you can answer some question like that, but, but you sort of miss the more important points. I mean, where vagueness comes in and the sororities conditions. Yeah, let let uh, me cut across you. I agree sure. entirely with those remarks. Okay. Uh, so, uh, wheeling out uh, a definition of a heap, which you just write down on a piece of paper in a raw arbitrary way, uh, that's avoiding the problem posed by right. the sororities paradox. Um, it's uh, convenient defining a way, but actually you haven't addressed the problem at all. What you said is, if I'm going to use the word heap in this special way, then there's no problem, to which the mm -hmm. response is, yes, but there's the word heap in ordinary English. It's not used in a special way. What are you going to say about that? That's what the problem is. And that's where indeterminacy and vagueness comes in, and it's an absolutely fascinating problem. And then maybe on your view of conceptual analysis, the the view that everybody is doing conceptual analysis, even if they don't want to use those words, to even begin to answer the question of the heap, you have to begin asking just what is a heap or what makes uh, the bald man and the paradox of the heap similar. Uh, you need to identify some sort of conceptual similarity. Uh, I think I might have misled you. When I said 
everyone knows conceptual analysis. Uh, I didn't mean everyone knows conceptual analysis every time they tackle any given philosophical problem. Uh, what I meant was the person talking about uh, puzzles about baldness and sororities and so on, they may, may not be doing conceptual analysis then. When they go away and give their second year lecture on whether determinism and free will are compatible, they'll find it very hard not to do some conceptual analysis. Or if they go away and someone asks them in the corridor, is 23 a prime number? They'll find themselves doing conceptual analysis, answering that question. So what I'm saying when I think that everyone does conceptual analysis, I mean, at various points during the day and during their career, they do conceptual analysis. I don't mean every single philosophical problem they tackle involves conceptual analysis. I don't, I don't think that's true, in fact. And Bahit's writing parallels are good examples. I think it'd be fairly pointless to try and give a conceptual analysis of what is to be heat. That's not the challenge. The challenge is this fascinating idea that one grain can't make the difference. If that's right, no matter how many more of these one grains you have, you can never go from a heap to an oni. That, that's not right. <laughs> that's the puzzle. I see, I see. Okay. And then returning to the example you gave uh, for the location problem when we were talking about uh, materialism, did does that relate at all to your views on a priori physicalism? Or does it lead into them? Yes. Um, let me say a bit about a priori physicalism just to set the context. Um, a priori physicalism is a view, of course, that physicalism is true. And what's more, mm -hmm. the physical way things are a priori entails the psychological way things are. So it, it's a double-headed view. But most people who are a priori physicalists, myself included, actually hold something stronger. They hold that the only way to be a physicalist is to be an a priori physicalist. So it's not just that a priori physicalism is true, it's that actually it's the only option if you want to be a physicalist. So that's the background. Now, why do people believe that? Well, it's not particularly, in fact, to do with conceptual analysis. It's to do with something else, which I can illustrate from the, um, the history of astronomy. So you may be slightly surprised. Why is someone talking about the history of astronomy when you've asked them about the philosophy of mind and physicalism? Um, well, this is another illustration of my view, which I've already mentioned once at least. Good idea to start with simple examples to make philosophical points. Yeah. So here's a simple example of this issue astronomy. Uh, in the 1700s, astronomers discovered that they couldn't explain the orbit of Uranus. Well, they had Newton's laws. They had lots of information about the neighboring planets. And they just couldn't get the orbit of Uranus right. They couldn't predict it. And then a very smart person said, let's postulate another planet, Neptune. Pop that other planet into the picture, and suddenly you can deduce Uranus's orbit. That's what happened. Now, what does it illustrate? It illustrates two things. First of all, scientists assumed their picture was incomplete, and they couldn't do the R reduction. And if someone had told them about necessary R posteriori connections, they would have not known where to look. They would have said, you don't understand. 
To have a complete picture, you've got to be able to do this bit of deduction. And we can't. That's the first thing it tells us. Secondly, it tells us is they did a metaphysical repair. They took it for granted, but they had to change the metaphysics so they could do the r deductions, and they put in Neptune. That's what happened. Now, a similar thing happened, of course, with the orbit of Mercury. They couldn't explain that either. And then, of course, that epistemological gap, they popped in another planet, Falcon. That was a big mistake. What they did, they crossed out Falcon, and they changed the laws of nature. They moved from Newton to Einstein. Again, that was metaphysics. Okay, now let's go back to the philosophy of mind. What this tells us is that if someone says a complete picture of the mind can be given in terms of what goes on in the brain or how the brain interacts with the surroundings, in other words, entirely in physical terms, but you can't do the reduction. And what I say is, the history of astronomy tells us, you don't say, how interesting, there's an epistemic gap. What you say is, we've left something out. And then, of course, the panpsychists and the dualists put their hand up. I can tell you what to put in. <laughs> They're only yeah. too anxious to do the bit of metaphysics. So that's the background. So I think a lot of discussions of a priori physicalism is a huge debate about necessary a posteriori and all this sort of stuff. And indeed, the location problem. I think people are forgetting the message from the history of science. When the dualists and the panpsychists complain about a posteriori physicalists, you say it's all physical, but you can't do the arc reductions. When they feel aggrieved, I think they're right to feel aggrieved. And the history of astronomy tells us, and the history of science more generally, uh, if you can't do that sort of deduction, there's a gap. And then the dualists and the panpsychists are entitled to say, here's how we fill the gap in. So that, that, that's, that, that's a perhaps slightly surprising bit of background to the way I look at the, the problem. I could say, but let me say just one more thing besides. The, the other thing to say besides, of course, is that physicalists often say a key idea they've got is we're materialists, but no extra properties. The properties are all physical. Because okay. after all, plenty of dualists who are mental states or brain states with extra properties. The physicalists say no, no extra properties. That is actually a mistaken way to say it. Because, of course, there are extra properties. They're called psychological properties. The whole point of putting physical things together in a complicated, interesting way is to create some new properties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after when someone builds a house, the house has properties, the bits that make it up don't have. There wouldn't mm -hmm. be much point in building a house if that didn't happen. they're physical. That's right. So same thing with human beings. Uh, if you're a physicist like me, and I suspect like you, we are the result of a complex assembly process started in the womb, in fact, and in a sense, it's all physical. The bits have the natures described in the physical sciences put together in a certain way, but the final outcome has new properties. Surely it better have new properties. I hope it has new properties. <laughs> Distinguishes you and me from trees and the table in front of me and so on. Um, so the view isn't that there aren't new properties. Of course there are. Now, once you said that, and the dualist comes and says, hold on, you've got to admit new properties. That's dualism. Now, I think there's only one thing that's physical to say, yes, they are new properties. Of course they are. And I'm very glad I've got one of them. In fact, a number of them, I hope. But they're a priori entailed by the way the bits are put together. That's the distinctive claim I, I, I'm making. If you don't say that, 
then you're losing, in my opinion, the distinctive claim that physicalists want to make. I'm sorry if I'm being uh, dense here, but I, I still don't quite grasp just what the thesis of a priori physicalism is. Well, it's a, a complete enough account in physical terms of how we are a priori entails our psychological nature. That, that's the thesis. Okay. So put, put together enough information about how we are physically, where how we are physically means how we are as described in neuroscience and medical science and biology and botany and so on, but not psychology. You, you can't put the properties of psychology in, of course, the view will be trivial if you do Put enough of those together, and that will a priori entail that someone's got beliefs and desires and feels pain and so on. Okay, okay that, no, that was very helpful. Then is this in some way, I mean, what comes to mind then is Chalmers and his zombies. Is this in some way a, a rejoinder to that? What it means is that anyone in an a priori physicist, including myself these days, of course I wasn't in the past, uh, has to say zombies aren't possible. So we okay. have to agree with Dan Dennett and many people who say, uh, yes, if at a, at a quick, quick run-through, you might say, yeah, I reckon zombies are possible. But if you think it through, what a physicalist has to say, and I think indeed it's a perfectly plausible thing to say, is that zombies aren't really possible. It's one of those cases, something that seems to be possible, but isn't really possible. And I don't, you can tell me not to do this. I would uh, not to press you on somebody else's views. Yes. But do, do you know, because I haven't interviewed David Chalmers yet. Uh, maybe I'll have the opportunity yes. to at some point. Uh, but why he finds the a priori physicalism not compelling and why he still believes that these zombies are possible. Yeah, sure. Uh, I know David fairly well. And I wrote a bigish paper with him relating to this. So let me say what I think he says with the caveat. You may be able to ask him in the flesh later. Um, perhaps the first thing to say, and I think it's okay for me to say this, David was once a physicalist. So, um, what David and I agree about is that the only viable form of physicalism is a priori physicalism. Okay. And from that, I become an a priori physicalist. And from that, he says, okay, the only viable form of physicalism is a priori physicalism. A priori physicalism is false, therefore physicalism is false. That, that, that's Dave's way of thinking about it. Now, why do you think a priori physicalism is false? Well, lots of dense, complicated arguments, but the key thought's this. It's obviously conceptually possible to have zombies. So that's point one. And if you think about it, this is one of those cases where what's conceptually possible matches up with what's metaphysically possible. Now, lots of complicated arguments to go from those two points. Uh, but if zombies are metaphysically possible, then that's a refutation of physicalism. And my response is, yes, if zombies were really possible, Physicalism will be false. But I think, in fact, that it's not conceptually possible to have zombies. But Dave's view is, of course, it's conceptually possible. 
And of course, lots of people agree with them, including lots of physicists. Uh, they think, yeah, it's conceptually possible. It's just like water not being H2O is conceptually possible. The physicists hasten to say, although it's conceptually possible, it's not really metaphysically possible. That's not, not the way I go. I, I think, in fact, it's not conceptually possible. And does that have to do with conceptual analysis that you've done, or just it follows from the a priori physicalism? Or are those one and the same? Well, it's a bit of both. Uh, one reason I'm an a priori physicalist is that I came to worry a great deal about the causal problem for non-physicalist views. Mental states cause behavior. We know enough about the causation of behavior to know that it's all done by physical properties. So that's a bit of metaphysics. Um, plus a conviction that mental states play causal roles. That hasn't much to do with conceptual analysis, just a conviction that mental states play causal roles, and we simply discovered that the causal roles played are actually played by purely physical properties, particularly neuroscientific properties. So that's a bit of metaphysics. If you then think, okay, that means I've got to be a physicalist, and you then think the only viable physicalism is a priori physicalism, then, of course, you become an a priori physicalist. So it's partly that. But it's partly that I do think that a common-sense functionist account of mental states is awfully plausible. This is a view which thinks that mental states is play, playing by... This is a bit of conceptual analysis. It's playing by definition uh, very distinctive causal roles. And I think we've discovered enough about the brain to know that those distinctive causal roles are played by purely physical states of the uh, of the brain. So that last bit, there's some conceptual analysis. And it's a bit of both. There's a metaphysics bit, the causal problem, and then there's conceptual analysis bit, that's if you like the analytical functionalism bit. Hmm. And I won't continue beating the physicalism horse for too long. We can move on in a minute. But is your physicalism, I guess, restricted to the mental and the psychological, or are you all around at this point a physicalist about the cosmos, I suppose, about this possible world, the actual world? Um, I'm a cosmic physicalist in the following sense. I'm quite certain that physicalism is true of trees and mountains and the sun, uh, but of course, there's everything a cosmic... that exists is physical. That that's right. But of course, there's a, a live debate about what physicists should say about numbers. That's what I was and going sets. to ask you next. Yeah, actually. no, no, no. I, I'd, uh, I'm steering clear of, of numbers and sets. Um, I know that some okay. physicists have thought that they're cosmic physicists, and that means that part of their program is to explain that we don't have to believe in numbers. Or at least you have to mm -hmm. believe in numbers, but not the kind of numbers that Platonistic mathematicians believe in. Uh, right. Uh, I would love to say I've got something sensible and penetrating to say about that, but I don't. Hartley okay. Field, mate. Hartley Field says, easy, just don't believe in numbers, but that, that's good. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to talk with Hartree in the near future because I've um, had a number of uh, conversations on the show about Hartree, but never yeah. with Hartree himself. Do you have, uh, granted that you're not a philosopher of mathematics, and like you said, you, you don't have a coherent position no. on the subject, do you have a gut instinct about uh, 
Platonism? No, I, I really don't. The only thing is I'll repeat one of David Lewis's remarks that I most enjoy when he was talking about philosophers being sceptical about mathematical entities. And here's the phrase, who wants to be the mouse that roared? Uh, you may not know there's a famous film, Peter Sellers' film, about the I mouse that know. roared. Ah, no. Okay. It's a film in which a tiny country holds the rest of the world to ransom because it's got access to a certain nuclear device. Yeah. And the film is called The Mouse That Roared. And the point is a tiny country bosses around USSR, America, and so on and so forth. What David Lewis is saying is, gee whiz, think of philosophers' track record versus mathematicians' track record. And versus said slightly embarrassing for philosophers to instruct people who are practicing one of the great achievements of Western science, what they should or shouldn't believe in. That, that, that's what David had in mind. Um, but I'm not making a contribution. I just couldn't resist uh, repeating that lovely phrase. No, that, no, that's good. I saw that you and uh, Graham put together a, a big issue on David Lewis's yeah. philosophy. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure, were you too close? Oh, this is David and I. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he was a he was a very remarkable person. In fact, I've got no hesitation in saying that he was the best philosopher I ever met. He was quite quite extraordinary. Um, I feel slightly impertinent to claim him as a close friend because, you know, I've touched you know. But I hope I was indeed a a, a, a close friend. But he was quite a quite remarkable person. Yeah. Uh, some years ago, I was asked about uh, who my philosophical heroes were, and I said Kripke, Quine, and Lewis. And I think people mm -hmm. were surprised those answers. How can someone who likes conceptual analysis? I mean, Lewis liked conceptual analysis, and Kripke, Dunno, Quine certainly didn't. Um, that doesn't alter the fact that they are in fact my three philosophical heroes, and I was lucky enough to know Lewis really quite well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean. I keep going back to Graham, though, but uh, Graham is not a fan of Quine because of his nunism. So it's interesting that he's, you both admire Lewis, but uh, Quine is one of your heroes and not uh, one of Graham's. But, well, do you remember, for, again, that was fair. Uh, I'm slightly, perhaps slightly unusual. My heroes aren't necessarily the people who say what I agree with. I see. So, uh, the reason Quine is one of my heroes is simply the way he shaped a whole agenda uh, and just the enormous influence. And, of course, I believe in the Alan synthetic distinction, and he didn't. But that doesn't alter the fact that I think contribution, the way he basically shaped the subject, was just uh, enormously, enormously important. But that's not to say I agree with that much of what he said, in fact. Well, he's one of my heroes too, for 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 what it's worth. But uh, moving beyond uh, physicalism, I think maybe maybe it'll come up again. But actually, okay, so you've written a lot about color, uh, both in the relatively distant past, which uh, we'll get to at some point, but also much more recently, and. You've written about it in conjunction with conceptual analysis, so I, I thought that that might be another good direction in which to go, and we can get back to the location problem uh, with colors. 
Yes. Um, let's let me do a couple of comments about the location problem. One way of thinking of the location problem is to think of a lot of language as being involved in categorization or classification. So, okay. Mickey Mouse example, the word chair. You use the word chair to divide things of a certain kind from other things. And when you use a word like chair or table or tree, you're, of course, you're not talking about the word as such. You're talking about the property which the word is used to pick out, where property here means classification. So the term chair divides the chairs from the non-chairs. Mm -hmm. And a way of thinking about conceptual analysis is thinking about it gives an account of what unifies the objects that fall under the word chair. So the objects of, in the extension of the word chair are alike, of course, in being in the extension of the word chair. But they're alike in another way, too. Otherwise, that wasn't true. The word chair would be no use talking about objects. You'd be talking about the word itself. So in a bit of jargon, we might say, we can ask ourselves, what does it take to be in the extension of the word chair? And you know, if you look around, the thing behind you is the wrong way. Your left arm is the wrong way. The microphone in front of you is the wrong way, but I bet you somewhere else in your room there's an object which you know is the right way to fall in the extension of the word chair. Okay. So on that way of thinking about it, conceptual analysis is nothing more mysterious than articulating what it takes to be in the extension of some given term. That's what's going on. Now, now go back to colour. What does it take to be in the extension of the word yellow? That's a good question. And what makes it hard is there are two countervailing forces when you think about it. One is you say, look, when you say something's coloured, basically you say it on the basis of how it looks. Really simple. Yep. It looks coloured. So the obvious answer is what it takes to be the extension of the word yellow. In English, different answer, of course, in German, they have different words. What it takes to be in the extension of the word yellow in English is to be something that typically looks yellow. So you, you're kind of subjectivist. So that, that, that's the first obvious thing to say. Now, things get more difficult if you then realize that the most attractive account of perceptual experiences is offered by representationalism. Called representationalism, perceptual yeah. experiences represent that things are thus and so. And the phenomenal feel of perceptual experience is tied intimately to how it represents things to be. So when something looks square, don't think your mental state's square. That's a big mistake. Yeah. Don't think anything your brain is square. What's happening is you're in a state that represents as something square. But you're representing how that thing out there is. Okay. Now, if that's the right way to think about it, the same should apply to color. So when something looks yellow, you're in a state that represents how that thing is. Not representing how you are. It's representing how it is. Now, if that's right, then it's a mistake to think that what it takes to fall on the extension of the word yellow is to look yellow. It's rather, it's to have whatever property it is that looking yellow represents it to have. So you see, you get this two words. First way of thinking, it's all subjectivist. The second way of thinking, you've got the challenge of identifying what property does yellowness, looking yellow, represent something to have. And that's why mm -hmm. in colour so art, you can see, you can mount a jolly good case of both, both ways of thinking. Now, 
as a convert to representationalism, I used to be sensate in theorists, as a convert to representationalism, it's the second line of thought that most moves me. So I'm asking myself, what does looking yellow represent something? How is something being represented to be where it looks yellow? And yeah. the answer I like is it's being represented as occupying a certain place in a similarity and difference space. The place occupied, you've got the colour solid, yellow is up there. Yeah. Remember, and bulge is out there because yellow is a bright colour. Uh -huh. uh, it's there. And where's red? It's uh, somewhere here. Yeah. I haven't got one picture. I was going to ask you. If... You said, yeah. that's, that, that's the yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, if uh, vagueness, since we were talking about heaps, yeah. if vagueness was going to pose any problems for um, the way that you tried to develop an account of color. Because when we have yellow here and we have red here, there's going to be this orangey space uh, that's going to be problematic. I think what you have to say is that if you're representationalist, yellow is a property looking yellow represents something to have. And then you say representation is typically, not quite always, but typically indeterminate to some extent or other. When you represent something being thus and so, you don't represent it as being exactly thus and so represented as being somewhere in an area. Um, and that's going to be true of color experiences in the same way it's true of motion. In fact, when you represent something as moving quickly, just when it switches from being quick to not quick, it is vague. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to bring David Lewis back here for a moment. Yes. So my understanding is that David spent a lot of it's, it feels funny to call him by his first name. David Lewis spent yes. a lot of time in Australia because he he really liked the way that Australians did philosophy. And Australians really liked him. And you have referred to your uh, position on color as the Australian view. And I was wondering what that meant and if it had anything to do uh, with the way that you do philosophy in Australia? That's a good question. Um, what I'm, I'm trying to remember where I refer to my view is the Australian view. Um, I have the quote in front of me if you I'm want it. I assume it goes back a bit, doesn't it? So it's a paper I called The Primary Quality View of Colour. Perhaps it was that. Uh, it's It's from... Your no, it's from the conceptual analysis book, but you write what you write is my answer is the Australian view that colors are physical properties of objects. Certain physical properties of objects have color names as well as their physical property names, and this view is sometimes known as the primary quality view of color. Oh, right, okay. So I was wondering though, what where Australian comes into it, okay. That's not quite the view I now hold, but let go back. It, it, it's Australian because of the view David Armstrong liked. David I Armstrong okay. was a big fan of the idea that we should identify the colours with physical surface properties. Uh, now, under the influence of David Hilbert, he changed his mind about just which physical properties they were. Uh, but basically, the idea was that yellow, for example, surface yellow, that is, we're not talking about volume yellow. Surface yellow was a property literally off the surfaces objective observer-independent property, which we detected when things looked yellow. And influenced by David Hilbert, he 
time thinking of the reflections profiles. You know, the little graphs which measure the percentage of uh, light reflected at various frequencies. Yeah, different view to start with. So that's what I meant when I talked to the Australian view. And, and Lewis liked that view as well. And Jack Smart yeah. came to like that view. Jack was originally behaviorist about color experiences, but after he read Armstrong, he moved to the view. That was the view I liked when you were quoting me then. Uh, I'm now keener on the idea that we should think of colors as locations in similarity spaces. The location are occupied by purely physical properties. Indeed, if David Hilbert's right, they're occupied by reflectance profiles. But it's actually the location in a similarity space, which is what color is. And what does the locating, the things that are located, are, as a matter of fact, reflectance profiles. So it's sort of a pretty Australian view. It's an objectives view. They're properties of surfaces objects. But it's not quite the view that you actually quoted then, because I'd rather change my mind on, on, on. Well, I moved from the physical property of the surface to the location in a similarity space. No, I, I mean, it, it's admirable, though, that you changed your mind. Um, same with the, I mean, we'll talk about Mary a bit later, but it would be terrible. I mean, just because, uh, a thought experiment or a paper is so, uh, influential that you can't change your mind on it. That would be terrible. So. Yes, it um, would be terrible. It is nevertheless slightly, I don't know if disconcerting is the right word, but when you're very well known for a paper, which you think is a good paper and you come to think it's mistaken. Bit of a wrench, but yeah, yeah. Um, but moving on from colors now, you also write about. I mean, the book the book is called from uh, from metaphysics to ethics. So maybe we can talk about how ethics fit in, fits into conceptual analysis. So what what where does the location problem uh, for ethics now? Well, here's the way I think about it. And this is not something I'll change your mind about. This is exactly what's in From Metaphysics to Ethics. Um, and, of course, uh, Sandberg draws on work with Philip Pettit. So although I'll speak for myself, I think I'm probably speaking for Philip as much as, as for myself. So suppose you ask yourself, I mean, forget about all the big fancy books, you know, utilitarianism, Kantianism, virtue ethics. Set those to one side. Ask yourself what actually happens when philosophers debate ethical issues. Utilitarianism, Kantianism, what actually happens? Forget about the waving the Kantian flag. What actually happens is this. They describe some examples of actions and happenings. And they invite people's responses to whether these actions are morally good or morally bad. So that a Kantian who wants to give the utilitarian a hard time describes certain actions with utilitarians as are morally right and invites people to think, that's an outrageous view. How can you possibly think torturing innocent people to make other people happier is morally right? So, of course, the utilitarian comes back Guardians, as you say, lying is never morally permissible. But think of Anne Frank kind of cases. You can't possibly yeah. think. That, okay, you know, you know how it goes. So there are paradigmatic examples of what they regard as morally good and morally bad. 
That's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is they have discussions about the relationship between matters described in ethical terms and other matters described in ethical terms. So they say, those you've got a range of options and you agree that the best one's here and the worst one's here, you're morally required to do the best one. That's what utilitarianism says. Others say, no, no, no. It's morally permissible to do the best one, but if the best one is unduly onerous, it's morally permissible also to do the second best one. Then you'd have that debate. And finally, you have people who say, look, if you really believe something's morally good, you've got to be motivated to some extent to do it. And some people think that's a conceptual truth. So if you think that something's morally good and got no motivation, you don't really think it's morally good. You mouth the words. You don't really believe it. Other people say, no, no, you really believe it, but nevertheless, there is something. Okay. Now, what have I said? You have a debate about which things get which moral labels. They're what we call input clauses. You've got a debate about transitions between things described in ethical and moral terms. That's the internal role clauses. And you get a debate about the connection between beliefs that things are good or bad and behavior. They're the output clauses. So we've got a picture. What we're trying to do in ethics is find the properties which make true the most compelling input clauses, internal role clauses, and output clauses. That's what actually happens. So what do utilitarians do? They say, right, what's morally obligatory is to maximize expected happiness. And then they try and show that that identification, it's the input clauses right, the internal role clause is right, and the output clause is right. And the kind of, no, no, these, you've got the input clauses wrong. Look at these ones. And then they offer their alternative. And, and so it goes. So what I think is that when push comes to shove, debates in ethics are actually debates about trying to find the properties that give the most satisfactory account of the most compelling input clauses, internal role clauses, and output clauses. That's moral functionalism. And that, 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 that's what I think actually happens when people debate ethical issues. And what then is the desideratum on a successful account? So how do we judge whether an account is successful? You describe your pot. It's a bit like solving a set of simultaneous equations. You say, right, here are my identifications. Here are the results for input clauses, internal role, output clauses. Now let's have a debate about whether we can or cannot live with the, arc, the results of those identifications. So if you're Shelley Kagan, you know Shelley Kagan's book on morality? What Shelley does is he, describing it through the lens of moral functionalism, he makes some identifications. Then he says, now I have to admit that some of these results are counterintuitive, especially for input clauses. Um, now, let me tell you, if you think things through carefully enough, you realize actually they're not that counterintuitive. First up, you think, my God, utilitarianism is bizarrely over-demanding. It requires you sacrifice all your interests for the good of people you've never met. Hold on, let me talk you through it. So now, you may or may not think that he succeeds, but that's what he's doing. He's trying, in my opinion, to make his identification the key ethical properties in natural terms, um, gives enough 
answers for input clauses, output clauses, internal role clauses. You say, I can, I can live with that. That's the best thing to do. And virtually, ethicists will say, no, I can do a better job. And, and, and so it goes. Hmm. Now, is the point here that you've arrived at this moral functionalism through the process of conceptual analysis? Is that sort of the, the moral r relative that, to the, that's the right. theme? The, the can... idea is that the role we give are ethical, well, I say concepts, but you don't have to say it in terms of concepts, suspicions of concepts. You can say it in terms of ethical language. The role we give ethical language is actually defined by its input clauses, output clauses, and internal role clauses. And a, a, a way to make that, well, here's the way I think about it. Think of what happens when you teach your children moral language. What do you do? You give them some examples of actions and give them a label, input clauses. You tell them how to reason in ethical terms, internal role clauses. You tell them the sort of behavior you expect from them when they believe something's morally right, apple clauses. That's how you actually teach your children moral language, input clauses, internal roles, apple clauses. So that's that's the plausibility, as Philip and I see it, behind moral functionalism. It corresponds, in fact, to how people acquire moral language, and require, also corresponds, in fact, to how, how people in real life, by which I mean only children, you know, philosophers in ethics, working in ethics, actually debate the key ethical issues. When you comes down to it, it's all about input clauses, internal roles, output clauses. Now, perhaps you view this as a virtue of moral functionalism, but what I find most striking about your conceptual analysis is that you don't bring in uh, moral facts or other sort of meta-ethical concerns uh, into the background of what people are doing when they're doing ethics. So I'm, I wonder, is your moral functionalism sort of agnostic about uh, moral facts or what moral facts might supervene on? Uh, I, 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 I'm familiar with that reaction. <laughs> Uh, you won't be surprised to oh, hear that's your... Good. That's good. I'm glad I'm on the right <laughs> no, track. No, no, you're, you're lots of good company. Um, I think it's... Well, two things to say. I think it's simply a discovery about the kind of world we live in, that there aren't any moral properties as such. It's all natural. That's simply a discovery. So when you read G. Moore on ethics... It seems that he has a view in metaphysics that ethical terms pick out properties which are distinct from any of the properties picked out in natural language. Here by natural language, I don't mean just physicalism sort of language. I mean the language for describing the descriptive nature of the world as opposed to the normative nature. Um, and the open question argument or some version of that, or maybe Parfit's triviality argument, shows that ethical language picks out a property distinct from the properties pick out the scripted language. Now, I have two responses to that view. One is, we know enough about what the world is like to know there are no such properties. So if you're convinced that's what ethical language does, and I'm afraid you'll have to think that J.L. Mackey got it right. When Mackey said there are no such properties, he was absolutely right. 
That's one reason. The other reason is um, it's not quite universally believed, but almost universally believed, that the ethical supervenes on the natural. And it's very hard to think how the ethical could supervene on the natural if it was distinct from the natural. So I think it's just a discovery that there aren't any such distinctive ethical properties. So what we have to think of when we think about ethical language, we don't want to follow Mackey. We follow Mackey, of course, and say, being morally good picks out nothing. Um, that's what the book, his little book's all about. Well, correction, that's what the first half of his little book's all about. Um, you don't want to go down that path. What you've got to say is that ethical terms pick out descriptive terms. And the task is to give an account which makes sense of how that can be true. And moral functions is the story I like, which answers that question. Mm. And a related view that you hold is often called analytical naturalism, but you've written that you prefer to call it analytical descriptivism. And I'm wondering what the motivation is behind the first term and what it is that you must find it connotes wrongly to prefer the latter. Oh. What well, one reading of natural is to contrast natural properties to properties of numbers and sets. So a natural property is simply a property of uh, my hand, something located in space-time. Uh, hmm. On that sense, of course, uh, everyone thinks, correction, everyone who believes in moral properties, some kind of cognitivist. Of course, the natural properties, being morally good as a property of an action, or an action is located in space and time. So in that sense, of course, we'd all be naturalist about ethical properties. That why should some people write articles and books defending ethical naturalism? No need to. It's obviously true just from the meaning of the word natural. So the point of preferring the word descriptive is just to say, when I say I'm a naturalist, I don't mean that boring document, doctrine. What I mean is we have a way of describing the world in descriptive terms like size, energy, motion, so on and so forth, all the non-normative terms. And the claim is that actually the properties you pick out in ethical language are one and the same as the properties you pick out in descriptive language. That, 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 that's the reason. Hmm. So I'm hmm. a naturalist in the sense in which most people are naturalist in ethics, but I think it's a slightly unfortunate label for the reason I go. Perfect. Now, this entire conversation thus far <clears throat> has been, I mean, <clears throat> even though we've talked about cases, I think it's really been about how one does philosophy. I mean, you, you've, you've also made some explicit comments on methodology, like your, <laughs> your preference for shorter, briefer examples, at least when one begins <laughs> conceptual analysis. But do you view this discussion of conceptual analysis as qualifying as meta-philosophy? Look, I, I, I guess so. But remember the example I gave way back in the beginning. Is 23 a prime number? Hard to answer that without an account of what it takes to be a prime number. So, mm -hmm. yes, conceptual analysis is an awfully important part of philosophy, but it's, my view is... My, it, 
those words will be found controversial. But I think when you realize that all I'm saying is, you want to know whether 23 is a prime number, you better give some thought as to what it takes to be a prime number. In the same way, if you want to know that a certain brain state is a belief, you better give some thought as to what it takes to be a belief. It's nothing more exciting than that, or if, well, that. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is that it, it seems that a lot of your thought has to do not just with philosophy or philosophical problems, but with how one does philosophy. I mean, you have thoughts, um, clear thoughts about the sorts of examples that should be used or the sorts of analytical tools that should be used. Do you, do you not see it that way? Or do you think meta philosophy should play more of a role in professional philosophy or, or less? Well, this answer may surprise you, but I've always enjoyed tackling the problems as such rather than talking about how you go about tackling them, which may be a slightly surprising thing to hear me say. Um, but uh, I'm not at all uh, against metaphilosophy. Uh, and to take a concrete example, uh, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of experimental philosophy, which again might be slightly surprising. People often think because I'm a defender of conceptual analysis, I should be against experimental philosophy. But um, I'm, I'm not against experimental philosophy at all. In fact, I think a lot of experimental philosophy is uncovering the nature of our concept. So to use an example I've used before, uh, I think Getty's famous example uh, was a bit of experimental philosophy, just that he did it through the pages of analysis rather than handing out uh, sheets of paper to his second-year philosophy class. Um, he was doing some experimental philosophy. He was describing examples in you know, pages of analysis and inviting people's intuitive responses to whether they thought the case of knowledge or not. That's good experimental philosophy. That's interesting. No, I, I hadn't... That connection had I'd never had never occurred to me before. Ah, like that. Well, hold on. You shouldn't have said that. You got me started, but I won't go on too long. <laughs> but I mean, think of what Kripke did in Naming Necessity. Think of the Gerdor Schmidt example. That was experimental philosophy. Could and you uh, re rehearse that for oh, our sure. listeners who haven't? Or remember what happened. Kripke was criticizing a certain version of the description theory of names. And he said, take Gerdor at that name. You might think of Gödel simply being the person who proved the famous theorem. Of course, Gödel's theorem is very, very famous. So you might say, okay, Gödel, the proper name, is just short for the person who proved Gödel's theorem. And then Kripke said, let me describe an example. Schmidt proved the theorem. Schmidt was a comparatively unknown person. Gödel stole the results from Schmidt murdered Smith. At uh, some point in the lectures, Kripke says, I do hope Professor Gödel's not in the audience. <laughs> but, and I, I'll have the example slightly wrong because I haven't uh, got the book in front of me. But basically, he tells a very compelling story about someone else, Schmidt, proving the theorem. And then he says, okay, what does the word Gödel refer to? Does it refer to Schmidt? 
And of course, everyone at the lectures, and everyone read naming associated with the book, all said, no, no, of course, the word girdle refers to girdle. It doesn't mm-hmm. refer to Smith, despite the fact that Smith's the person who proved girdle theorem. So that, I think, was a bit of experimental philosophy and a very compelling bit. Uh, I think when he yeah. told us that, everyone said, right, Cripps got it right. And I think that's experimental philosophy. Just because it appears in a set of um, philosophy lectures, as opposed to being the result of handing something out in lectures or putting it on the, the web and getting people to vote in, as often happens in experimental philosophy, that, 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 that's, that's, by the way, that was experimental philosophy and that it would have been tick. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. So you just you just mentioned uh, Kripke, which was where I was going to go because I want to talk about your book, Language Names and Information. And first off, I mean I think you're primarily known for your work in philosophy of mind because of this huge paper. I mean, even my parents, who are not academic philosophers, know the the thought experiment uh, because it's it's referenced in movies, all sorts of places, but. Though, of course, you've written also across a wide variety of philosophical topics. But was it a connection to the philosophy of mind that first inspired your interest in naming and language? Yes, I I guess so. Um, Of course, like everybody, I read Naming and Necessity. I thought it was a wonderful book. So that in itself was enough to get you interested in in philosophy of language. Um, it's the wonderful thing about naming necessity, apart from the fact that it's a terrific book, is it's so accessible. Uh, yeah, it discusses very really difficult issues, but in a very accessible way, which brings them alive. Um, just, it, it's a really, well, when I say it's a remarkable achievement, I'm saying what everyone says. Um, so it was partly that. Um, it was also partly, I was interested in the philosophy of mind uh, but of course, when you're interested in the philosophy of mind, it's impossible not to get uh, involved in the philosophy of language. For example, what happens is, if you're interested in the view that mental states are brain states, which was obviously interesting and challenging view, that's of course a view of metaphysics. But you have to, at some stage, say, let's suppose you like the view, so I think mental states are brain states. You have to answer the question, when people report their mental states, as in, I believe that snow is white, or I was in pain yesterday, it's clear that in some sense they're not reporting their brain states. I mean, in some sense they are reporting their brain states, but they may know nothing about the brain. Uh, They're clearly reporting something. They're reporting some belief they've got about how they themselves are, what they believe, whether they were in pain yesterday. It's not a belief about the neuroscientific nature. So what is it? Now, then, of course, immediately you're facing the issue philosophy of language. What is a sentence like, I'm in pain, sorry, I was in pain yesterday, or a sentence like, I believe that snow is white, what claim does that make about how things are? And then you're in philosophy of language. So you can't really right. keep, keep them apart. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, perfect. So I have a very long episode. It's a over a three-hour episode with Richard Kimberly Heck of Brown University that's exclusively about the reference relation. So we um, we start with Frege and obviously go on to Russell and, and Kripke and some other philosophers. But because of that, I don't think we need to rehash all of this in great detail. 
But I would love to hear just for context, uh, before we talk a bit about Kripke, uh, just how you would explain the descriptive theory of names. Let me say something that may slightly surprise you. I love the I love the surprising uh, things. That's great. There's a view which says there was a huge battle between the descriptive theory of names and the proper causal theory. And the descriptive theory of names was orthodoxy until Kripke came along, and then Kripke demolished it. So we've got these two warring mm -hmm. parties. And then a bit later on, Fred Kroon and David Lewis and maybe Frank Jackson came back and said, well, the description theory is not <laughs> really demolished, provided you have some causal stuff in the descriptions. So this is a picture mm. where you've got two views at war with each other, description theory winning in the past, being demolished by Kripke, perhaps being revived, although many people say, no, the revival's no good. Okay, so... And I imagine that you and Richard traverse some of that territory. Okay, but here's right. but but first, uh, I I just wanted I was hoping you would say just what the descriptive theory is because I don't think all of my audience I can't count on everybody to have listened to that episode. Oh right. Okay. Well, let, let me give the old-fashioned description theory because it's easy to describe. The old-fashioned description yeah, theory says this: proper names are simply short for definite descriptions, and in the case of well-known historical figures. The relevant descriptions are the properties they're famous for. So let's take the example we just talked about a moment ago, Girdle. Girdle's famous for proving a very important theorem. So the description theory said, when I say Girdle worked in Princeton, what I'm saying is a person who proved Girdle's theorem worked in Princeton. So it's, a, right. it's simple as that. And... Uh, uh, is George Bush the 43rd president of the United States? I can't remember that. I, I, should, I don't even know if I should know that, but I don't. I definitely don't know that. I didn't well, do so well in U.S. history. Boris uh, Johnson is most famous for uh, being uh, the most swashbuckling recent prime minister of Britain. So <laughs> proper name Boris Johnson on this version of description theory would just be short for the most colourful recent Prime Minister of Britain. So that 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 that, that was the idea. Um, and then you might have variations which had metalinguistic stuff in it. So you might say people like you and me who aren't famous the way Boris Johnson's famous, what we're famous for is having names. So Frank Jackson is short for the person called Frank Jackson. And you're the person called Robinson and so on. Um, so that, that's the description of theory. And what Kripke pointed okay. out absolutely correctly is that we can refer using proper names uh, even if we're completely ignorant of these descriptions. Um, and in fact, he used the example of Feynman. Feynman was famous among people who were interested in science, but very important things he did in physics. But lots of people who knew nothing about physics successfully referred to Feynman by using the word Feynman. And that's clearly, clearly correct. So I think it's right to say the old version was basically demolished. And what Kripke said was we should think of the reference as secured by a sort of initial attachment between a person and a name, baptizing, somehow or other, putting the name together with a person. 
and then in historical chain where the name is passed on from one speaker to another. And that was the alternative. Okay. Now, the new... Yeah. The new, new and, yet, yeah. and I think you mentioned that there were these two views, an orthodox view and another view, and, and Kripke maybe... There was a, deb a debate about whether or not Kripke demolished... That, that's right. Now, the, the new descriptivism is captured when David Lewis remarks... Um, the description theory by famous Steve was repeated by Kripke once and for all. But there's another my view which says, well, the role of the descriptions are, well, Kripke gave them to Morton, um, a name gets attached to something, and then that name is used to pass on information about it. That's a description. So that's the new description theory. That's the idea. Oh, interesting. So, like so what meta, you do is you put, some, yeah, that's right, you put some causality into the description. Um, so basically... Feynman, for example, refers to the person called Feynman and initiated a causal chain, which is maintained by people using the word Feynman in a certain way and end up. Okay, that, that was, that's a new. Yeah. This is really appealing to me. No, okay. Now, hmm. roughly, the last theory is a theory I like. Um, but here's, okay, a bit, okay. here's the bit I'm going to say which might surprise you. Um, I think people have got too hot under the collar about this, as if that's the important thing. The important thing about language is the way it passes on information about the world around us. That's the important thing. So the word chair, used that earlier, tells you yeah. about the objects around you. Now, the same thing applies to proper names. The important thing is to be clear about why proper names are so useful. Now, the answer is that the world is a huge place full of lots of objects, too many objects, and often you want distinguishing marks. I mean, think of the rooms at your university. They have different room numbers on them. Someone says, why do they have different room numbers? Well, the answer is because it helps you distinguish one room from another. Why do the buildings on the Stanford campus have different numbers or names? The answer is to distinguish one from another. Now, proper names are like that. There are a hell of a lot of people in the world, and proper names help us separate out one person from another. A bit of history here. Um, you may wonder about middle names. Middle names run common once. They're now common. In fact, they're common partly because of American tradition. There were too many Americans. So, too many Frank Jackson. Ah, Frank Cameron Jackson. Frank Andrew Jackson. Ah, got to separate them now. Harry S. Truman, as opposed to... Okay, so the middle names gave us an extra... Okay, so the picture is we use proper names to distinguish one person from another, and that's because it's so important to separate people out, and buildings, and so on and so forth. And what's more, we use those names to pass on information about the people who get named. That's the important thing to say. Now, I don't care whether someone says that's the causal theory of reference proper names, well, that's causal recruitism. What I care about is that's what explains why proper names are so useful. They're tags that get attached to things, and those tags are then used to pass information about them. That's the important thing to say about proper names. And I don't care whether you say Kripke wins or Lewis wins. That, that, that's a sideshow. Once you're clear mm -hmm. about what proper names are, are around for. And that was, I think, in a way, Kripke's 
really big achievement. He focused uh, focused on that particular point. Um, but I should add that, as you'd expect, um, other people have said similar things. Um, because I say as you'd expect because what I've been saying is common sense. Hey, everyone knows that names self distinguish one person from another or one building from another, and those names are used to pass on information about them. So that's the folk theory. So it's not surprising that you'll find a bit of it in Wittgenstein. And I've got a feeling it's somewhere in Strawson, um, P.F. Strawson, I mean, um, but I'm not sure. So mm. that, that's a bit might surprise you. Uh, I don't want to have a fight with... That's not what's worth fighting about, because we all agree about the basic insight. Yeah. Now, you mentioned somewhere in there that at its core, and here I'll have to paraphrase, that the maybe maybe you said the purpose of language or maybe it was just the purpose of names but it's to represent and convey information yeah and i can finish that out with i mean in such a way that speakers of the language uh, can interpret it but in in the book you you label this framework the informational come representational framework yeah and you you just mentioned that something else was common sense, uh, that names do such and such. But I think that language represents information to be conveyed is also also strikes me as common sense. Yep. But presumably you wouldn't have had to label this a framework with the name the informational come representational framework if this was common sense adopted by everybody. So what then is the alternative uh, to what strikes me as pretty natural. Well, I don't really know. If I was rewriting language names of information now, uh, I'd try and say things in more commonsensical terms. Um, but I'm not backing away from the basic views there. Um, mm -hmm. Why do I put the jargon like that? Um, well, well, it's not so much a question yeah. about the jargon. Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering, is there... Are there people who view, are there philosophers who view language as doing something significantly different or just different from uh, representing information in such a way as to be conveyed? Uh, I'd like to say we all agree about that, but okay. uh, but why am I sounding a bit hesitant? Well, let let me. Give the example of the word water. The mm -hmm. word water was used in the 1700s to convey information. Now, it wasn't used to convey information about H2O because we know that water was H2O. It was used to convey information about the watery stuff. So there's a sense of reference in which the word water refers to the watery stuff. And that's just come from the information we're thinking. Now, I think... Dave Chalmers and many people think that's just common sense. But I have to tell you that some people are very strong to the view that this is a terrible mistake. And you have to say that water refers to H2O, and you mustn't say that water refers to the watery stuff. So that's why I'm being hesitant, because clearly there's a disagreement, because you can tell from the vigor with which in both person and in, in print, they object to saying that word water refers to the watery stuff. I mean, that people actually write books saying what a terrible view this is. So clearly there's disagreement 
Um, but I don't think there should be disagreement. I think it's just it is just common sense. Having said that, I do think, of I... course, another sense of reference of world water refers to H two O. I read uh, Mark Richard's book, uh, Meanings of Species, and something that I, I, this was a few years ago, but something I recall that was very striking to me was that if you give people, a, a you show them like a, a clear cup of Coke and you show them like this murky cup of water from a river, the there might be a much higher concentration of water in the Coke. Yep. Uh, but they will refer to that as Coke and they'll say this very uh, dissolved, not so watery after all uh, cup of river water or from the Charles maybe yep. is uh, water, which is uh, kind of fascinating psychologically. So maybe our intuitions diverge somewhere. Uh, about what water well, the question is, I mean, our bodies are largely composed of water, of course, and yet we don't refer to ourselves as, as water. Yeah, there, there, there are all sorts of intuitions. Um, but that is not the fact that... Well, mm -hmm. Here's what I think is clearly true. The word water was not used to convey information about H2O in the 1700s. <laughs> yeah. That, you yeah. may say, Clear. what was it used to convey information about? Well, the watery stuff's not quite the right way to say it the reason you've just given. You've got to say something a bit more complicated. But the one thing you shouldn't say is that conveyed information about H2O. And therefore, in one sense of reference, it didn't refer to H2O. That's compatible with referring to H2O in another sense of reference, of course. Hmm. But now, I think that before... I, just to go back with it, I, I regard that as a lot of common sense. But many people are very strongly opposed to it, which is why I was so hesitant to say, yes, of course you're right. We all think that language is crucial thing is it's a way of conveying information about what the world is like. Hmm. No, I mean, that's a very important caveat. Now, before we were going to talk, I had actually never heard of two-dimensional semantics, but it comes up uh, in your, in your book, you refer to it as two spacism, but I think now you refer to it as two-dimensionalism and Maybe before we get into what that is, since it's, I, I, I don't know, calling it twice as complex as one spacism or one dimensionalism isn't right, but it does have another, it has another dimension to it, literally and figuratively. So maybe first, since we didn't get into this aspect of the Kripke semantics, um, what the more familiar one spacist analysis of languages? Uh they're really two separate issues. Um, okay. One is an issue about the space of possibilities. Um, and in a way, it's... Well, a popular view these days is that we need to distinguish what's conceptually or epistemically possible from what's metaphysically possible. Mm -hmm. And the standard example is that uh, water's not being H2O is conceptually or epistemically possible, but not metaphysically possible. So if I had a whiteboard here, I'd illustrate this view by drawing a big circle and a smaller circle. And the big circle would be the space of what's conceptually or epistemically possible, 
and the small circle would be the space of what's metaphysically possible. And that's two spacism. Um, that's a view in the metaphysics of modality. Um, and it, I think it's a mistake. Um, and I think that Kripke thought it was a mistake. So people often cite Kripke as someone who taught us about this, but I think that's a misunderstanding of, of what Kripke thought. Um, I think it's clear that he thought there was just one space of possibilities. Um, so that's a thesis in metaphysics. Um, Two-dimensionalism versus one-dimensionalism is a view in the philosophy of language, uh, right. which you can state independently of two-spacism versus one-spacism, so thesis in the metaphysics of modality. Um, uh, let me give a really elementary example. Um, suppose I say, I am bald, which I regret to say is true. Uh, <laughs> there's two ways of thinking of the truth conditions of I am bald. If I produce I am bald, as I'm Frank Jackson, you might say, okay, it's true if and only if Frank Jackson is bald. And if you think in terms of possible worlds, you say, it's true in all the worlds where Frank Jackson is bald, and false at the others. So it partitions mm -hmm. logical space. That's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is, when I say I am bald, I'm not saying who I am. You happen to know who I am, but I'm not saying who I am. That's not part of the content of what I say. What am I saying? I'm saying I'm one of the bald. I'm saying I belong to the class of the bald. Not saying which one I am, just I'm one of them. Now, on that way of thinking about it, what I'm saying is true, even only if I belong to the class of the bald, in whatever world it is that I'm in. And now the truth conditions are no longer the set of worlds where Frank Jackson is bald. The truth conditions given by a function that goes from a person in a world to truth, just if that person belongs to the class of the bald in that world. Or in a bit of jargon, you get centered worlds. But I think that can be slightly misleading. Centered worlds. That's right. So what you've got then is two ways of giving the truth conditions for I am bald. That's two-dimensionalism. And I think that should be relatively non-controversial. Non um, and that's separate. No notice in describing the case for two-dimensionalism about the sentence I am bald, I don't have to mention anything about metaphysical necessity versus conceptual possibility and all that sort of stuff. Right. There was no nothing about so two-spacism. So that, that 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 so I think two-dimensionalism about semantics should be regarded as completely non-controversial. But might think it's controversial whether it applies proper names. That's another question. But an example like I am bald, I think clearly you should think of it in this two-dimensional way. Is there a way of determining which of the two sets of truth conditions make the sentence true? Do they ever diverge, or do they both have to be true? Um, or Well, at the actual world, given that I actually produced Iron Ball, they're going to agree at the actual world. Um, okay. But what I think is interesting is the second way of thinking about the truth conditions. I think that gives you the international value of the sentence Iron Ball. When you hear someone say I'm bald, as I said a moment ago, they're not saying who they are. They're simply saying, I belong to the class of the bald. So what you learn about how the world is, 
is the person producing the sentence belongs to the class of the ball. Do you learn something about class membership? Um, so from an international point of view, it's a second way of thinking, which I think is the uh, most valuable. And now, I guess, to make things more concrete again and to go full circle, how does this go back to, and excuse the, gar the jargon, the informational come representational framework? How does all this talk of, of possible worlds, um, centered worlds, right. uh, give some utterance... Right as actually used among individuals, uh, the information it carries? Well, the connection is, the idea is that when you give information, you basically narrow possibilities. So take the word chair, very easy example. Um, you're wondering about the objects in the next room. There are many possible possibilities, tables, chairs, bottles of bourbon, uh, bathtubs, <laughs> Who knows? Uh, if someone says there are chairs in the next room, then among the many possibilities, the possibility where there are no chairs, illuminators. So the idea is simply that information is the narrowing of possibilities. So lots of open things, you hear some words, and you close in. So collecting information is narrowing poss possibilities. And that's a way of thinking, of course, which is, fits with known probability theory. We talk to probability theorists when they talk about our probable something is they talk in terms of narrowing the possibilities because they're assigning numbers to the various possibilities. So you're narrowing possibilities. Um, now, if you agree with me that the important thing about the sentence "I am bull" is it tells people that I belong to the class of the bull, without saying that it's Frank Jackson. I just I'm one of those who's bull. Then what gets narrowed? is the possibilities that the person you can hear saying, I am bald. So you hear someone say, I am I bald. Suddenly, the possibility of that person being hairy is illuminated, eliminated, just down to, to, the, to the bald proper subset. So that's the informational framework. The idea is it's narrowing the possibilities. So when you model things in possible worlds terms or in terms of functions from objects and worlds truths, that's what you're doing. You're reflecting that way of thinking about information. Hmm. Okay, well, no, this this has been really great. I mean, uh, in some of these interviews, I, I always, I pretty much always enjoy having the conversation, but I don't always learn a lot. I mean, sometimes we talk about things that I'm relatively well-versed in, but I didn't know anything about the two-dimensional semantics. I didn't I hadn't ever really thought about conceptual analysis. So this has been really awesome so far. And now I, I'm going to thank you for something else, which is uh, thank you for letting me bring up this tremendously famous thought experiment uh, that you're well known oh. for, because I'm sure it's old hat for you. I mean, more than old hat for you by this point. But you have this thought experiment about a woman named Mary and it goes along with something called the knowledge argument. And before we talk about the argument itself, uh, and, and maybe this will be more interesting for you to talk about than the, I'm, all the conversations I'm sure you have about it, but 
Do you recall what you were thinking around the time you devised it? Like what your what your general philosophical attitudes were at the time uh, that resulted in the argument before we go into the thought experiment itself? Well, I was an enthusiastic dualist. I'd been I'd been a colleague of Jack Smart's. I'd been taught by David Armstrong. So um, I was very much up with all the arguments for not being a dualist, but I was convinced that there was something about the nature of phenomenal consciousness that was left out of the sort of story that Jack Smart was telling me and David Armstrong was telling me. So in that sense, I was in the camp that David Chalmers now belongs to, people who describe themselves as dualists and panpsychists and so on. Um, and it was sort of a gut feeling. And the psychology department at Monash asked me to give a lunchtime talk defending what they thought of this rather curious view because materialism, materialism, physicalism is very popular these days. But back when I wrote Epiphenomenal Qualia, it wasn't just popular. It was close to orthodoxy. So it was slightly regarded as slightly strange to be resisting the smart Armstrong view on these matters. Um, so I had to give a lifetime talk. So I sat down and said, well, what's the most powerful case I can give? And I knew the H.G. Wells short story, The Country of the Blind. So I sort of sat down. What is that story? Oh, there's a, a short story by H.G. Wells about The Country of the Blind in which someone with vision is in a country of the blind. And this person has a terrible time convincing the blind people, that he's got a capacity they don't have. They just think he's good at winning fights. So they re recognise he's rather good at winning fights. But they don't believe that he's got this extra... And, that, <laughs> and of course, this is all a terrible mistake on their part. Um, and that made me think of the possibility of people who see one more colour than we do, but can't convince us. We don't... You know, and then I realised that would be a big mistake. Of course I see one more colour than we do. Even we can't imagine what it would be like to see one more colour. And then, of course, the Mary. So it all sort of built from there. So just lunchtime talk. Um, so that, that's the history of it. Um, I do want to emphasise uh, lots of people have had similar versions. Well, in, in, in the published version, I footnote a couple of earlier versions. Um, but since I wrote that paper... Uh, I've discovered how many people have had an argument of this kind, um, and indeed people tell me it can be found in lots. So I, I do want to emphasize the knowledge argument. Um, as I've said elsewhere, I give myself brownie points for giving it a forceful, powerful <laughs> presentation, but I don't give myself brownie points for being original because other people had said mm. similar things in the past before me. So... What then, it, would you mind walking through briefly the, the thought experiment and then the knowledge argument that goes along with it? Well, a way of thinking about it is to imagine that you live in the world of black and white movies. So, you know, late night television, these are, it's less common now than it used to be. Late night television used to be black and white movies. So, for example, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a black and white movie. Um, a wonderful one. Yep. Yeah, right. So you imagine 
that you're brought up in a black and white world, like a black and white movie. And in that world, you receive absolutely wonderful lectures on neuroscience and embryology and physics and chemistry and so on, all on black and white television, of course, uh, through black and white textbooks. So you become an absolute expert on the brain, uh, light waves, how the eye processes light rays. You also, you see on the television screen people outside the room using words like yellow and red, and you know what causes those words. Certain white waves, certain reactions in their vocal cords, you know all about that. But nothing ever looks red to you, and nothing ever looks yellow to you. So, that, you know all that. Now, it's plausible that you could know everything that physicists talk about when they talk about the nature of light, because you've got all the physical science that you think of it. And then one day you'll let out of the room, and suddenly things look yellow to you or things look red to you. That's never happened to you before. And the very plausible intuitive response to this is you've learned about properties you didn't know about before. Now, maybe it's prop, maybe the lemons look yellow. Maybe it's property of the surface of lemons. Maybe it's a property of your response to the lemons. Maybe it's a bit of both. But one way or another, your conception of what kinds of properties we found in the world has gone up. But you know about the physical properties, therefore the physical story is incomplete. That's really as simple as that. Hmm. And why is it called the knowledge argument? Oh, because in the room you have complete knowledge about the physical nature of the world. But that complete okay. knowledge is not complete knowledge of the world. That's what you discover when you leave the room. Okay. And now, going back to around the time you wrote it, and I'm referring specifically to this version with Mary, do you recall sitting down and actually writing it? Oh, well, nowadays we chat to PowerPoint. I wouldn't dream of reading a paper, but back in those days, we wrote things out. So I wrote it mm -hmm. out. Now, it was quite short, called Lunchtime Talk. And I wrote it out and read it, um, and then I turned it into an article reasonably reasonably soon afterwards, because it went well as a talk, and I said, oh, well, it seemed to have gone well as a talk. Indeed, a number of hardline materialist physicists in the audience were clearly worried about the argument, and I thought, right, so it, it, it should get a wider audience. Hmm. But so, so did it just come out of you after... Like you saw, you sat down. You were thinking about this H.G. Wells story, or uh, so. I'm I'm very curious about the creative act, I suppose, that went into creating this tremendously influential thought experiment. Or was it? Was it? Did it come out in in conversation with someone? Or no, I think it just happened. I had I, I promised to give this talk, and I had to something just happened. Okay. Uh, uh, and you just so you just sat down maybe yeah. and it kind of flowed out of you. Yeah. Um, huh. Some of the best ideas I've had in philosophy have sort of come from nowhere. I don't quite know where they've come from. I spent a fair amount of time just staring out the window or going for walks. I know many people spend much more time than I do reading. Um, 
Fingers no, crossed. That, that, <laughs> that answers a lot. <laughs> no, that answers a lot. That's great. Now, you you mentioned that uh, to me, outside of this, that there is another version of the argument, uh, Kripke's, based on hearing. What do you remember how that one went? I uh, no, I uh, no, I've never heard that paper, and there are other people who've got version in terms of hearing, but um, I've heard reports of the talk, and in fact, I've read uh, a paper written by someone who's worked with Kripke. Um, but I think the the intuitively you can get the sense of how 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 the hearing argument will go. It'll be someone who's a complete expert on um, sound wavelengths and the way that sound wavelengths uh, prompt responses in people's brains and lead them to say things like, that's middle C, and mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful expert on how people respond to wavelengths, what we call listening to a song, but is actually profoundly deaf, and then suddenly they get hearing and they suddenly realize that it's cool. In a way, it's very like the color argument. I think the reason some people find the sound argument attractive is, as a matter of neurophysiological fact, it's not entirely clear that when Mary leaves the black and white room, she would actually have color experiences. It would be an incredible neurophysiological shock. There's some debate about exactly what happened. <laughs> now, I think myself, Contrary to many opinions, and this is irrelevant to the thought experiment. Um, yeah. But yeah. possibly the advantage of the sound version is that, well, I guess actually people are profoundly deaf who suddenly have their hearing restored probably find that pretty unsettling as well. But I think the yeah, people, <laughs> I think I'll give up at the stage here. It's just funny how uh, somebody saying, well, she, she might have a neurological shock and not see color is very similar to the people answering the Sorides paradox by trying to explain what a heap is. I, I guess they're they're missing the point of the conceptual analysis. I reckon they're missing the point, but I have to warn you that some well-known philosophers are very strong on this particular issue. I'm thinking okay, about well, a terrible mistake about the knowledge shut. argument, but I, I, I just think they're missing the point. Now, so you ultimately repudiated the argument, yep. and do you remember just when or how this happened that made you the the click that went from dualist to physicalist well i always worried about the implications for the causal efficacy so there's the digital properties uh how do you know about digital properties so the obvious answer is that they do some causing in fact one rather hopes they might have caused the writing of the paper uh, if you're phenomenal, Carl, out. But the best story we have about what causes people to put words on paper is not a story that involves properties outside the kinds of properties that physicists talk about. So you've got the sort of, you know, like the spectre of epiphenomenalism. And I worried about that. In fact, this paper is called Epiphenomenal Qualia, so I grasped the nettle. I didn't try and pretend that you could uh, avoid epiphenomenalism. And I gave a sort of argument which says epiphenomenalism is not too bad. And it's an argument often described as sort of the triumphs of philosophical cleverness over common sense. And as that phrase suggests to you, as time passed, I 
I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I didn't say much about it because I had no idea how to respond to the argument. Uh, although I no longer accept the argument, I thought, I've always thought that it was a very important argument. And some people think it's a really bad argument. I think that's all a big mistake. It's not, not a bad argument at all. Right. Um, so it had to be responded to, but I had no idea how to respond to it. And then what happened, people like Michael Tai and Bill Lycan and David Armstrong converted me to representationalism about perceptual experiences. And then I thought I could see how to reply to the argument. So that's when I came out and said, this can't be true. What you should do is be representationalist and respond to the argument by drawing on representationalism. And again, going back to your feelings and the moment yeah. and the time, I imagine that it was extraordinarily difficult being um, the hero for duelists everywhere and having also written this paper that was so highly regarded and influential to recant. Uh, and change your mind uh, publicly. I mean, maybe uh, this wasn't reaching millions of people around the world, but within the philosophical community, which is relatively small, it was probably quite big at the time. How did how did that feel, uh, changing your, your thoughts on the argument, and how did people react to it? Well... Most people said nothing. <laughs> what they said in private, I don't okay. know. Uh, there were a few people. Uh, there was a couple of occasions at workshops and conferences. People um, expressed regret that I'd changed my mind in reasonably vigorous terms, not super vigorous terms, but reasonably vigorous terms. Um, and uh, there was the odd thing in print and so but uh, I think see, enthusiasts for the argument just said Jackson made a mistake when he repudiated it so I'm going to go on defending the argument and they may say actually I prefer the version offered by Howard Robinson for example rather than the Jackson version anyway so I'm relaxed um, and the people who thought the argument mm. was a failure from the beginning said how come it took him such a long time to see the light so I think Yeah, well, the last thing I'll ask you on this note, and I'm going to quote you again. Uh, In in Mind and Illusion, you wrote, uh, most contemporary philosophers, given a choice between going with science and going with intuitions, go with science. Although I once dissented from the majority, I have capitulated and now see the interesting issue as being where the arguments from the intuitions against physicalism the arguments that seem so compelling go wrong. And I wonder if you have a, a general theory, I guess, having thought of, about this for so long, um, where do the intuitions go wrong regarding physicalism? And maybe furthermore, are there any other thought experiments that come to mind like the argue, like the knowledge argument, I mean, we mentioned the zombie argument as well, uh, that are illustratively or illustratively, I never know how to <laughs> pronounce that word, incorrect in this respect, that they just get the intuitions very wrong. Well, in the case of the knowledge argument, 
I think what happens is when you have a perceptual experience, there's something awfully attractive about the idea that you're in some kind of direct awareness relationship with a property, and the nature of that property determines the nature of the experience. So to take a simple example, when you have a, a yellow round after image, that's a very distinctive kind of experience, and it's very natural to think its yellowness somehow involves acquaintance with yellowness, and the roundness involves acquaintance with roundness. After all, why do you say it's yellow and round? Which is clearly the right mm -hmm. way to describe it. So that's, I think, very intuitively compelling. And then what happens is you say, but hold on. There isn't actually anything yellow around there. What you have to say, there's nothing yellow there and there's nothing round there. So somehow the intuitive response Nature experience is misleading you, despite the fact it's so compelling that you're confronted with instances of yellowness and roundness. So what do we have to say? Well, we're misled by the nature of our experience. And then what representationalist says is, look, think of it this way. You're not confronted with yellowness. What's happening is you've got a state which is saying, it's yellow, it's yellow. Now, how does it <laughs> say it's yellow, it's yellow? But seeming to you that you're acquainted with yellowness, and ditto for roundness. But there's nothing round there. After images don't exist, nothing round out there at all. So what's happening is your intuitive response is just misled. So that, that, that's the illusion. Uh, uh, and I think, here I'm being more controversial, uh, I gave the example of after images, because of course it's pretty plausible after images don't exist, and people are very sympathetic to the idea that it's a big mistake to say something round and yellow, but I think the same thing's true when you see something that really is round and yellow. I don't think you're directly acquainted with roundness and yellow in the center either. Um, what you're in a state representing that's round and yellow. And the reason it's critical, not an illusion, is just as a matter of fact, there is something which is round and yellow. But your experience is not an acquaintance with yellowness and roundness. It's a state which urges on you a certain view about how things, how things are. Um, so... That, that, that's all an illusion. And I think in the case of perception, it's an awfully tempting illusion, so you can see how it happened. Um, but you have to be representationalist and think about afterimages to realise. So it's not an easy thing to see. It's all a big mistake. Um, but that is not a fact that I'm sure it is, is, is a big mistake. Um, elsewhere, uh, are there thought experiments which I think I'm suspicious of? Well, I'm... Um, the Getty thought experiment is pretty compelling, but I don't myself think the Twin Earth thought experiment is particularly compelling, just to give you a, a famous example of a thought experiment which I myself don't think is particularly compelling. Hmm. Uh, and maybe you could say why that is? Oh. Well, what you're supposed to say about the Twin Earth thought experiment is this. We've got the word water, which we use for water on Earth, which is H2O. Uh, there's this distant planet, Twin Earth. It's got stuff mm -hmm. which is awfully like water in all its superficial properties. It gets drunk. Right. Or all the rest of it. Um, it's XYZ. You're supposed to say uh, the word water, as we use it, does not apply to XYZ. And if you want to talk about XYZ, 
you've got to coin a new word, maybe the word Porto, T-W-A-T-E-R. So that, that's the standard story. Um, what do I say? Well, Putnam told us that story. But Putnam is the same person who told us about multi-realizability. He pointed out that there are things which could be realized in different ways. A very good thing. So why don't we just say that XYZ is the other realization of water? In which case, the word water in our mouths would apply to XYZ. Didn't Putnam tell us what to say? So I find it completely mysterious why some people should think the first answer, which is the author of one, namely the word water in our mouths doesn't apply to XYZ, is thought to be the clearly correct answer when Putnam himself told us how it could be the opposite. And then maybe the right thing to say is it's just indeterminate where the word water in our mouths applies to XYZ on Twitter, which is in fact what Lewis says. So that, that, that's the reason I think that particular thought experiment is not particularly compelling. Hmm. Uh, well, Frank, uh, the last thing I'll ask today, because I, I'm just curious, uh, you, I mean, you've worked in philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, metaphysics, uh, ethics. What are the problems that you're thinking about right now? And you don't have to answer them or give answers to these problems, but what's on your mind as you write and walk and look out the window these days? Um, this will be a disappointing answer. Um, some good friends of mine have lists of projects. They start at the top and they work their way down. Uh, I I've never been like that. Uh, as I said before, I look out the window a lot or I go for walks. I go to a lot of talks. I enjoy going to talks and they often prompt ideas. Um, so... Uh, I guess I'm waiting for the next idea. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Nothing may happen, of mm -hmm. course. But um, uh, so I haven't got anything on a piece of paper next to the old laptop, which is the next project. Um, uh, I guess I'm waiting for something to happen. Of course, um, there will come a stage where nothing happens for the slightly unpleasant reason that confronts all of us. Uh, mm -hmm. but so that's a disappointing answer. No, it's fine. Well, Frank, I mean, this this has been such a such a pleasure uh, and such an honor. So thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, great fun. Thank you very much, Robertson. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson East. Please do so.